Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we have the great pleasure of having Melanie Siroff with us. The search for the exact right word at the exact right moment is what gets Melanie up in the mornings. That and her first period class at Meffin High School on Long Island. If you ever want to know truth, hang with 26 teenagers for 40 minutes a day, every day. They are a teacher's truest critic and they are our ultimate teachers. Melanie's core professional belief is that the goal of an educator is to help students cultivate the tools they need to render their teachers unnecessary. When at her best, Melanie believes a good teacher will teach herself out of a job. As an undergraduate student at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and again as a master's student at Queens College, Melanie was mentored by professors who believed in letting students lead. Student ownership of their classroom and of their coursework leads to the richest of learning experiences. As a recently conferred MFA student from Hofstra University, she has spent the last four years living this truth on the receiving end of the teacher-student coexistence. Throughout her teaching career, Melanie has tried to make her students and colleagues realize the importance of their voices and the significance of bringing something to every table, the faculty room, the classroom, the home. The passions of our lives are the basis for great leadership. In 2015, Melanie's passion led her to script a TED-Ed video about ancient Greek theater. This quirky video was her entree into the TED community. Since then, she has attended a TED conference, gotten to present briefly on the TED red carpet, and organized TEDxWC Meffin High, a TEDx event dedicated to people who are passionate about ideas worth spreading. In addition to her students, Melanie is motivated, inspired, and cheered on by her husband, and her three children. Welcome, Melanie Siroff. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Lily. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, Melanie, can you share with us a bit about your journey and what you're doing now? Sure. I grew up in Oceanside. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about my journey, I was trying to figure out how far back to go. And I suppose as it is for all of us, it all matters, right? Yes, it does. (laughs) So I was a theater kid. Mm -hmm. And in my junior year of high school, I had this incredible opportunity to travel cross country and absolutely fell in love with the West. Mm. And I came home 
at 16 years old and told my parents, all right, if I could go spend four years out West, that would be fantastic. And we started looking for colleges out West and my parents are incredible, incredible people. They agreed to let me go. Incredibly supportive parents. That's awesome. Supportive. And this is a time before the internet. Mm -hmm. So all we had to go on was a brochure from the University of Colorado. Supportive Uh, and adventurous. (laughs) There was no pictures, no school visit. It was just, hey, I think that's where I want to go. And my parents allowed that to happen. And I think I really changed there and started to learn that I can do that and be on my own and be away from everyone that I'd known. You know, nobody from Long Island that I knew was out there in Colorado. And I really started to sort of find myself there because I had no choice Right. because right? I was separated from everything I had grown up knowing. And I loved that experience. I went into school thinking, hey, maybe I'll try some theater classes. And I did. And I figured out very quickly that college theater was not for me. That scene was not for me. And fortunately, down the hill from my college in Boulder was Boulder High School. And Boulder High School had this unbelievable high school theater program. And I went in and offered my services, whatever I could offer to be an extra pair of hands in order to learn from them. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was truly an apprenticeship in the best sense of the word. Mm -hmm. At that time, did you have a mentor or was it just instinctive, like, this is what I need to do? I think I was just looking for me. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was searching for. And had the high school not been so nearby, I don't think I would have gone. I don't think I would have sought that out. Mm -hmm. But I got there. They accepted me, as theater people do, into a wonderfully warm family. And what I figured out was that as much as I loved theater, what I really loved was being around teenagers Mm -hmm. and watching them start to become everything that they were going to be in the world. Hmm. How old were you now? I left at 18. It was after my senior year of high school. And I started in Boulder High School. I was a sophomore, so 19 years old, Mm -hmm. maybe 20. Mm -hmm. I apprenticed there for the three remaining years of college. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, where I found sort of where I was going. And my mom would fly out and come see the high school show that I was you know, working behind the scenes at. And I remember a conversation she and I had. She's like, okay, I can, I can see what being around theater does for you. So what could you do with a theater major? And we both sort of looked at each other and were like, nothing. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't going to be on stage. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that I was going to be a director. And the two of us couldn't figure out anything else someone could possibly do with a theater major. Right, right. <laughs> and my mom and my dad were both career-long teachers. And my mom said, well, you could you know, teach high school English and run their theater department. Hmm. And lo and behold, that was what I started to do. But the reason I go back to that story, which I think is really far back, is because it really leads me to where I am today. Because as an educator today, that conversation, as important as it was, you know, on Long Island, I joke with my students now mm-hmm. in the high school that we believe there are only four jobs here on, on the south shore of Long Island. You uh-huh. could be a firefighter or a cop. Mm-hmm. You know, my students will go into nursing. You could be a teacher or you could work in the city. (laughs) 
And my students don't really know what their parents do when they work in the city. They just know that they get on the train in the morning, they go into the city, they work for a day and they come home. Right. And that sort of encompasses everything. Right. And more and more as an educator, I found that I want my kids to know that there are hundreds of thousands of jobs out there. Mm-hmm. You know, that I didn't know that you could be anything in the theater world, that I could be a publicist, that I could be a stage manager, that I could go into law and represent acting talent, that I could go into the music end of it if I had any musical talent. Mm -hmm. I sort of think that you're either talented enough to be on stage Mm -hmm. or that job is not for you. So now in my high school, in my classes, I talk to my students about, well, you know, what's your passion? Oh, I love that. Yeah, because that's what we want to be doing. And if we can teach our students that there is a job for you in the field where your passion is, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of world will that create for us? If everyone goes to work, so happy to be doing what they're doing. Melanie, you know what I love? I love your sense of adventure and I love how you explore things. And it goes back to when you left, you're in this exploration mode, but that still happens as I'm listening to you explore with your students. Like I first met you at the TEDx Mm -hmm. meeting for Hofstra and you immediately struck me as someone who was passionate and also curious. Absolutely. Both of those things, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head. (laughs) So when I think of a high school teacher, that's exactly where you need to be because I think of all these teens who are really searching and need guidance and need a mentor and need a leader like yourself. That's super exciting to hear. Thank you. So tell me about your aspirations to grow as a leader. If I were remaining in the schools, the classroom is a great place for me to be, but I would love, I want to grow the curriculum. I want the students to understand that there are other options and that they are just as viable as you're even more vital Mm -hmm. than the nine to five than what's putting food on the table, mm-hmm. or that they can do both of those things. Right. So, Melanie, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, I have a tough time with that. Mm-hmm. I suppose in the classroom, I'm really just trying to get the students to figure themselves out. So I don't see the fearless leader sort of dead poet society standing on the desk, go oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> I love that movie. It's a great movie. But you know what? I could see you doing that, even though you can't see yourself doing that. I always try and push it back on them, Mm -hmm. you know, for them to find out where they want to be. So the identity that you're talking about specifically for this podcast as a leader is a little hard for me to put on. Okay. So let's explore this a little bit. Do you know Dr. John Maxwell? I don't. Okay. So he's probably one of the most effective leaders on the planet. He wrote the book, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. He's written many books, but this is the book everyone needs to get because it delves into 21 laws of leadership. And one of the laws, which to me speaks to educators especially, he says that leadership is about influence, nothing more, nothing less. So with that in mind, Melanie, if you know that leadership is about influence, think about how you lead your students, right? Absolutely. And I like that definition. And that I can identify with. With my seniors, the first thing I tell them when they come into class is that I have no answers for them. Mm -hmm. 
And that rattles them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though, because you're teaching them to think. And that's hard at the start. Mm -hmm. I had one class of students a couple of years ago. It was silent in the room, I want to say, into November. Mm. Because I try and set them up where we're having group conversations but I won't feed them answers. And I'm not looking for one specific answer. So I teach English. I teach an advanced placement literature course. Mm-hmm. So these kids come in and they are thinkers, but they've also been handed the myth that literature has answers, mm-hmm. that there's something that the author really meant, or that you know we're trying to discover something inside and know if it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And I spend the beginning of the year pulling the rug out from under them and saying, I I don't know. I don't know if that's what the author meant, but if that's your theory, well, then let's look at it further and see how that works throughout the rest of Mm -hmm. the novel or throughout the rest of the poem. And they start out the year preempting their answers. So I'll say, so, you know, what's going on in this poem? And someone raises their hand and they say, well, is it that the speaker really wants to escape? And I'm like, I don't know. Stop saying, is it? They still think the answers are sort of hiding in my pocket. Were they frustrated at first? Yes. And I absolutely like to play the quiet game where it becomes uncomfortably quiet in the room Mm -hmm. because they're waiting for someone to break the silence, Mm. particularly after asking a question. So I'll throw a question out there and not answer it Mm -hmm. and wait on them to answer it. And yeah, at the beginning of the year, it's an uncomfortably long four minutes Mm -hmm. that we're all sort of staring at each other in a circle. But then they come to rely on me less, Mm -hmm. which I think is what a good teacher and perhaps what a good leader does. If I'm doing my job right, I should teach myself out of a job. My students should be able to come together and pick up any book and be able to have a meaty conversation about it entirely without me, because they know how to ask the questions themselves. They know what to look for. They know where the pleasure is in the book. And that's it. And I'm done. And then hopefully, I've influenced them, like you said, to go on and take that into their college pursuit or to their after high school pursuit. That's beautiful. I'm sitting here and I'm smiling. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's what a good coach does as well. Coaching involves asking questions. And I can connect how you lead as a coach would lead you teach as a coach would teach and those students are lucky to have you. And so I'm excited that you're on the call because a lot of us need to hear that. So Melanie, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? I love that you just asked that because I'm Google searching the exact quote that I have here because I wanted to get it right. It's from The Crucible. So The Crucible is Arthur Miller's play about the Salem witch hunts, but also about communism in America at the time. And the young girls are crying witch, essentially, and a couple of them may or may not be possessed at the beginning of it. And one of the characters is screaming and yelling that she's so upset that her child seems to be possessed. And Rebecca Nurse says, I have 11 children and I am 26 times a grandma. And I have seen them all through their silly seasons. And when it comes on them, they will run the devil bow-legged, keeping up with their mischief. I think she will wake when she tires of it. And that line just sticks with me. She talks about just being still Mm. amid the craziness. Mm -hmm. 
and that when the children are through with their silly season, they will come back. And I believe that particularly about leading teenagers, they are going to run you ragged and make choices that you would not make or that you can see as an adult as the wrong choice or not Mm -hmm. the safe choice from a mile away, Uh, but that they have to make those decisions and they need to live with them and that it's going to be okay. And that if you can be there for them when they're ready to come back, when they're done with it, and it's all played out. Melanie, I love this, especially because I have a teenager. (laughs) And it really speaks to me, you know, to be still. I love that. When I think about my teenage years, I'm thankful that my son isn't as crazy as I was. But it helps to kind of set my mind to not get so caught up in their silly season. And also in doing that and not reacting to them, right? We're teaching them to lead themselves. Absolutely. And then I have two others and certainly not a famous quote on leadership. I think it probably hits something else that I know we'll get to. But I had a wonderful mentor at Queens College named Randy Bomer. And I did my education master's there, my English ed degree there. And he was really revolutionary. You know, he was certainly teaching workshop format. He was teaching to get away from pretty handouts and teacher-led everything and the chalk and talk, which was wonderful to see that freedom in a classroom and to have an adult who understood it be mentoring me and all of these other new or not even yet new teachers. And a couple of years after I earned the master's, I called him because I was working in a district. I was still untenured Mm -hmm. and I wasn't able to do all these wonderful things, readers workshop, free choice for student novels, pulling away from the whole class novel, writer's workshop, all of those wonderful things that we had learned, I was having difficulty doing in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I said, all right, Randy, what do I do? And he said, well, you have two choices. He said, you can either leave that job and find a job in a place that's going to let you do that, or you can make the place where you work the kind of place you want to work at. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment for me. And they weren't judgmental options. They were simply, here's the deal. You're either going to create the space that you need to do what you're doing, or you're going to move to a space where you can do what you're doing. And I chose to stay and wonderfully had support from administrators and other educators who were willing to have the philosophical conversations. And what I figured out was if you are able to talk good pedagogy, people will listen to you. Mm. So prior to that, You had not had those conversations? Not as much. I think I wasn't having them and I wasn't missing them because I was just newly out of school. So I had had, you know, three years of having those conversations and I was head down writing my lesson plans, figuring Mm -hmm. out how to be a good teacher, learning all of that. And my district certainly taught me a world about being a good teacher. But when I picked my head up from that process. I was like, okay, I do like what I'm doing, but there's so much more that I want to be doing. So he ignited that in you being intentional about what you want for your future, what you want for the future of your students. Absolutely. And he was always about what's the end game? What's your purpose, right? And we're still having these conversations. And I think that's how good leadership starts. It starts with those conversations and being able to find the people in your school or your workplace who are willing to have those conversations as colleagues, like that collegial 
educated, intelligent, hey, what's going on in our world right now, in this world of education? And what is the research showing? What are the new books about it? And what kinds of conversations are people having about education? And let's have those conversations. And Mm -hmm. not everyone is interested in having those conversations. But if you can find a core of people who are interested in that and then start bouncing off each other and then start trying things in your classrooms that are founded in that and are geared towards making our students, certainly in my discipline, lifelong readers and lifelong writers, Mm -hmm. then that's how sort of the movement grows, right? That's Mm -hmm. how you start to lead and you start to create leaders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you listen to yourself, right, do you start to really sit with the fact that you are a leader? I think I'm getting there. I hear what you're saying and I see how influential you are and you're intentional about what you do. You're certainly a leader. You don't need me to tell you that, but maybe you do. Maybe you do. Okay. So Melanie, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? For me, it always comes back to passion. You get these sort of talent crushes and it doesn't matter what the person is talented in, right? It could be that the person has an unbelievable singing voice or uh, is a wonderful teacher or is a fantastic musician. If someone is truly talented, you want to be around that person. Mm -hmm. And if someone is passionate about their craft, whatever that is, and I do believe teaching is a craft, that's what gets me inspired. And if you love what you do, you could teach me anything. If you love economics, and I am not a history, political, economic, financial person, but if you are passionate about that, I'm in. I want to listen to you. I want to hear what you have to say. I want you to teach me because those are the people that I want to learn from. Right, And that's something you can't fake. Absolutely. And it's where you want to be. You want to make your life's work the thing that you do when you're procrastinating everything else. Mm Mm-hmm. You're in your element, you're in your zone. Yeah, Yeah. that's what you want to do. This summer I had the opportunity, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, to be away on a TED convention. Yes, I'm jealous. TED conference. (laughs) Awesome. This was also world-changing for me. There were a lot of takeaways Mm -hmm. from the TED conference. First, being put together with literally a 1,000 people who were as passionate about something, anything, medical research, community building, immigration laws, It was just a thousand passionate people. Mm -hmm. That was motivating in and of itself. And these were real movers and shakers, people who get ignited and then do something about it. So I knew that that was sort of coming when I found out that I was able to attend. My biggest takeaway was really a surprise. And it was about staff relations and Mm -hmm. how you treat your team or your staff. I came away from TED Summit feeling valued and feeling trusted. And it was sort of a given from the organization that I had something to say, right? And that it was something that people would want to hear, Mm -hmm. right? That I was bringing something to the table. Mm -hmm. And that's how I tend to talk about it. Everyone sat down and you knew that everyone had something to bring to the table. And then they pampered us in all the most wonderful ways. And I said, why isn't public education like this? Hmm. You know, why aren't we cultivating our talent, giving them a chance to speak their mind, 
speak their passion and their expertise and valuing that and trusting. We spend so much time as the public education industry making sure people are doing what they are supposed to be doing. Yes, micromanaging. And certainly you're speaking the truth, Melanie. Yeah. One of the things we could sign up to do when we were away for TED was to go rock climbing. Well, how do you write that off? Like, how is that? (laughs) (laughs) And what I realized was they knew that sitting on the bus for 45 minutes heading to the rock we were going to climb, Mm -hmm. we were all having networking conversations and community building conversations. And hey, you're a TEDx organizer. Help me out with this. You're a high school teacher in Michigan. How do you handle this? So we were incredibly productive without being told we needed to be. And that was my big takeaway. And when you feel valued and trusted and you're around all these passionate people and you yourself are passionate, isn't that where you want to be led? When I think about this, I'm inspired by leaders who value me, who trust me, and who are passionate. Yes. And I want to be a leader who values and trusts and inspires, right? I I want to be able to put the right people in the room together and get out of the way. The best conversations happen, not in the faculty room, not in the faculty meeting necessarily, and very frequently not during professional development Mm -hmm. because it's not organic. But those conversations happen when four of us happen to be sitting in a small office and we're discussing current events, right? right? And then that discussion turns into, wow, you know, it'd be really cool if we talk to our kids about that. And if we spoke to our students about that, what if they turned around and did blah, blah. And all of a sudden the idea explodes because four of us were in a room together having a great conversation about things that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to see education take that direction. Mm -hmm. Now, Melanie, you mentioned team. So what does it mean to have a good team and how would you build one or sustain one? I think good team building first requires work outside of the office. Mm -hmm. Right. That good team building is grabbing dinner one night and decidedly not talking about this task that we're supposed to get done so that we can value each other as whole and complete human beings who are dealing with families and who are dealing with finances and who are dealing with work life balance and all of that. So I think that's key and something that I continue to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think good team building has to do with identifying people's talents. Mm -hmm. And we all have them. If we first know who we are and what we're good at and what we're not good at, right? right, What we need support in. And then we can identify that in our team members mm-hmm. and then play to those strengths, right. which just seems logical and not entirely unique. And I'm certainly not the first person to think that, right. <laughs> but that's what it is. I think if you can identify each person's talent mm-hmm. or their strength mm-hmm. and then say, okay, great, you go do that. Let's do that together. I'm going to take my strength and we're going to pair it up with your strength and we're going to put the two things together so that we have the whole thing. So Melanie, for someone who doesn't think that they are a leader, you certainly have a lot of things on straight. I'm pretty impressed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, when you talk about building a team, when you say, well, having time with them outside of the work environment. It's building relationships, which right off the bat, when I first met you, I can tell that you're really good at connecting with people. Thank you. I enjoy it. Yeah, I can tell. That's a passion of yours. Now, Melanie, what's the best advice you've ever received? 
I told you about Randy Bomer. I think my mm-hmm. other one, and I don't know who I heard it from. It could have been on a talk show. It could have been in a chat room. I'm not sure. But somebody said, good teachers live good lives. Mm-hmm. And I've taken that to heart. Mm-hmm. That it's not all about the classroom, that I am a better teacher if I am living a good life. Mm-hmm. If I am out and satisfying my need for exploration, my need for nature, my need for family. If I am doing those things, then I am, in fact, feeding the kind of teacher that I am. To keep that in mind when you're buried under 125 essays that need to be graded by the end of the marking period, I think to remember that's important. And I don't know any good teacher who doesn't take everything that they have experienced and bring it into the classroom. You're right. right? No matter what that experience is, they're planning a party for their family, reading the New York Times, Mm -hmm. uh, listening to music and their passion for that. All of that works its way into a classroom. And if you're not doing that, right, don't our artists do that? Our Mm -hmm. artists take a year or two years off from making music to go live a little so that there'll be something to make music about. It's beautiful. I love it. I want to thank you. You're passionate. I can hear it in all of the things that you're bringing to the table. I'm excited about that. So can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? I think the first one that goes to me, and I have been incredibly fortunate that my challenges have not been insurmountable. I think trying to figure out who I was and who I am after having been home raising my children. So I started my career as a young teacher. I put in five years. And then I went out on maternity leave. And during that maternity leave, had my three kids and stayed home to raise them. And my husband and I really talked about the decision to stay home. Mm -hmm. And I knew that for me, I would not be 100% content in either place, Mm -hmm. that it was going to be an 80-20 split one way or the other. Right. (laughs) And the decision for us and for me was that I would rather stay home because I won't be able to get that back. So Mm -hmm. if I'm going to be not 100% fulfilled, but 80% fulfilled, I would rather be 80% fulfilled doing the diaper changes and the first steps and all of that and missing work. I didn't want to be missing the family, but getting back to work was very important for me Mm -hmm. and figuring out who I was getting back to work was very important for me because much in the same way that I believe good teachers live good lives, I believe that's true about parents as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that, that I have to wholly be me or almost wholly be me and attend to that in order to be an effective parent to my kids. and an effective wife and to create the kind of family that we want to create in my home. I'm sure that many listeners either have experienced this or are thinking about doing this. And so how did you shift your mindset? How did you transition from spending seven years at home and then going back to work? My school district has three high schools in it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go back to the school that I had left. I was going into a new school. So I was the new person. And I went in probably two weeks before to see the lay of the land and figure out my desk and everything like that. And I walked in and the other teacher in the room had already set up all of her stuff, you know, divided right down the middle, like this is my side of the room kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I had like the old dingy desk in the room, Mm -hmm. which I fully understand because if I were the older teacher there, I would take the better desk. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the room And I opened up that old dingy desk and I kid you not, there was a pencil and in the eraser, it had one of those cap erasers on it. Mm -hmm. And there were about 10 thumbtacks 
pressed into it, it looked like a bomb was about to explode. Oh, wow. And I was like, well, that's not exactly what I pictured coming back to the classroom. (laughs) (laughs) And I had this moment of, all right, how am I going to do this? It has been a long time. And that was sort of my moment, that half hour in the empty classroom. Going back to work in September, the first time I was back in the classroom and surrounded by students, I said, I have never felt more like myself. Mm. And that was true. That was a piece that was missing for me. And that's how I know that I'm doing the right thing. But then I think like everyone, life's a journey. And a few years after that, I was like, all right, so now what more? What's next for me? And that was when I decided to go back to school for my MFA in writing. That's the next piece of me that I want to reclaim. So going back to pursue my MFA made me again a better teacher. Yeah. And Melanie, I think about the quote, be the change that you wish to see in the world, which is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite quotes. And I can see you walking in that space because in the same way that you push your students, I see how you push yourself. I do, uh, but I also need it. Right. That works for me. That's great. So Melanie, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the life of those around you? I think the most immediate one is completing my MFA Mm -hmm. because it is the end of what started in my undergrad work in 1992. I was always someone who wrote my notebooks, whether it was a math notebook or an economics notebook or a geology notebook. They all had poetry on the sides or the beginnings of short stories, or I was always doing that instead of taking notes Mm-hmm. about igneous rocks. And I knew that I needed to return to it and figure out what that was all about. Mm-hmm. And having returned and having made that decision, and it was a big decision. It was a big decision for me, for my family. It took time away from my family. Right. It was a financial decision, but it was also something that was a piece that I needed. Mm-hmm. And it took me four years to do a two-year program, mm-hmm. or it took me 43 years to realize all of it. And to have come through that and end up with a piece of work that I am truly proud of Mm -hmm. and to see my growth as a student there, I would say is my most recent success. And I do think that it impacts my family because they've watched that. My daughter and my two sons have seen me dedicate myself to this and have known that it took sacrifice. And I think they also understand how it's changed me and how it has filled me. Mm And how it fuels me. And I want for them to be able to do all of those same things, to find things that change them and fulfill them and fuel them. Wonderful. And I'm sure your students see that as well. Now, Melanie, what would you tell someone who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I think that goes back to what Randy Bomer had said to me, which Mm -hmm. was, you want to make this a place that you can be and do what you want to do. Perfect. I think that we tend to shut ourselves down. We say, oh, the administration will never go for that. And I don't know that that's true. I don't think that that's true in Mm -hmm. most places. I think there's always someone willing to have the conversation with you. Mm -hmm. And if you can find those people to have that conversation, that's important and that's significant. And that will help to make the change. And also that life is way too long to be that unhappy where you are, Mm -hmm. right? So you either need to do something to change it. Well, I guess it's not an either. I guess you need to just do something to change it, whether it's a small thing that starts out in the classroom, you can close the door. And we all know that about teaching. In some ways, the isolation is a terrible thing and a detriment. And sometimes 
it's an oasis. You're right. I have, Lily, a different success. This was an early one, happened early in my career, and it still sticks with me. I had a student in class who, he was like a little more street smart than the other kids in class in suburban New York. You know, a little bit tougher. He had some great opinions that I always liked to hear, but I don't think he'd identify as a student. Didn't matter to him if he turned in his homework, didn't matter to him if I commented on the homework. He wasn't looking for any of that, but he would participate when I called on him and he was constantly in disciplinary trouble and he was given in-school suspension. He had ISS for two days for, I don't know, cutting some other class or whatever it was. And I got the notice in my mailbox that John would not be in class because he had ISS And lo and behold, he showed up in my classroom. And I said, John, I thought you weren't supposed to be here. He's like, I know, but I ditched ISS to come to class. Wow. And I thought that was fantastic. That was pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) That that I count as an early success. I would say so. Wow, that's great. It makes me smile. I worked with students with emotional behavioral issues. And oh, it just brightens your heart when all the effort you put in, all the love, all the work, all the dedication, when it comes back to you that way, there's nothing that can express how that feels. It's true. And those small moments stay forever. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Melanie, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Now I'm learning how I'm going to fill all this time that I have when I'm not taking classes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll fill it up with wonderful stuff. And that fill happens very quickly for me. You know, what is the next thing that I want? I've always been someone who, you know, someone talks excitedly about something. I'm like, oh yeah, I want to go be a part of that. I, Mm -hmm. I want to go do that. Yeah. Show me how I sign up for that. I'll sign up for anything. So for me, that's what it's all about. It's about understanding how much is out there in the world and how, little each one of us knows about that Mm -hmm. and being able to increase my knowledge of that, whether it's in the educational world or the idea world Mm -hmm. or the writing world, any of that works for me and excites me. Now, I met you because you help facilitate TEDx talks. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I was looking for a motivation for my students. We were starting to read Oedipus. And I know that TED has a TED-Ed bank of videos, and they're all educational, and they're about five minutes apiece. And I said, oh, they have to have these cute little animated men in togas or Mm -hmm. something along those lines that I was going to use for my motivation. So I looked on their website and there wasn't one, but very cleverly in the corner, it says, have an idea, nominate yourself to write a TED-Ed video. So I clicked on it because I'll sign up for anything. And I filled in my idea and wrote my email to them, sent it away and did not think twice about it. I think it happened going into the summer. And then October rolled around. We were back at school and my phone rang and it was Alex from TED. I didn't even know there were really people at TED. (laughs) And here Alex was calling me. And we started on what is still the most collaborative experience of my professional life, Mm -hmm. creating the script for the TED-Ed video, which they eventually animated and put up online. And it's been a lot of fun. And now I have a motivation for my Oedipus unit. And then I guess a year after that posted, I got an email as part of the TED-Ed community as one of their writers that I was invited to 
go to TED Summit, which was a gathering of all TED community people. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't pass up that opportunity and got to go there where I met a bunch of TEDx organizers. And I knew that I wanted to bring TEDx to my high school. So came back in September. I said, all right, we're going to do this. <laughs> uh, lined up the license. TED gave us the TEDx WC Mepham High license. And we started cultivating speakers. And I knew for our first event, there were a couple of people I wanted to speak. I had some people in mind that I have known my whole life who I just know are dynamic and have something to say and have Ted's motto is ideas worth spreading. So I started to pull those people together and they were connected to the Belmore Merrick School District or they were connected to Long Island. I pulled a team together, a team of volunteers who pulled this off for us. I mean, it was tremendous. We hosted nearly 200 people. We had 11 speakers. We had two young entrepreneurs from another high school reach out to us and say, hey, we'd really love to come tell you about our nonprofit. Oh, wow. And it was an amazing Saturday. Mm. It was four hours on a Saturday morning. Families showed up. Students showed up. It was such a celebration. We're gearing up to do it again. So we're excited for that to happen in a little less than a year. So do you do that as a consultant now? No, I'm down as the lead organizer and the founder. And Mm -hmm. our team is a volunteer team. We have right now one person from outside of the school. And then the rest are teachers who are donating their time. Wonderful. And you were able to, with their help, pull this all together and it's been successful and you're gearing up for another one, correct? Yes. Yes. So just so that you know, signs of a great leader are people who can lead others and the others aren't motivated by any monetary incentive. So leading a group of volunteers to create a project that's successful is great leadership. So pat yourself on the back. (laughs) Thank you. I like to think of all of us as leaders and Mm -hmm. because the pieces all need to be there. Mm -hmm. And I'm someone who, when I see something and I want to get it done, it's usually something that I know that I will need help with. Mm -hmm. So I might be the instigator, which I like. I like being that first spark, but I also like shooting for the stars so much so that I need other people there. And you certainly do influence people. So is there anything in education in the U.S. that you would change if you could? That is a loaded question. Yeah, I think there's so much that needs to change. I think that our idea of keeping up with the times is technologically based. And I don't know if that's right. I mean, I know that technological awareness and skills need to be there and are the baseline for our students. Our classrooms, not everywhere, but across the country, still look like they did when I was in school and still look like they did when my parents were in school, with the exception of a smart board. But the curriculum and the structure hasn't changed. We're still teaching the classics. Mm -hmm. I, I pulled out Of Mice and Men, which is a good book, and I knew the kids would like it, and it's short, and it's a quick read, and it has a surprise ending. But I looked at the copyright, and the book is 80 years old. Hmm. And there's so much rich literature right now, mm-hmm. young adult literature, what's on the New York Times bestseller list, that we are not bringing into our classrooms. And I think part of it is because we haven't figured it out. You know, we haven't let go enough. What's that line that in order to get to the other side, you have to be far enough away so you can't see the shore anymore? Somebody said that well, but <laughs> we can't let go of sight of the shore enough mm-hmm. to really change anything. 
in countries around the world, people are breaking away from a numerical grade system or even an alphabetical grade system. And they're turning towards learning stories and portfolios and students taking ownership of their education and of their learning and their growth and having to defend for a student to have to turn around when they're leaving high school and say, well, here's where I started. And this was my understanding. And here's where I ended. And now I know all of these things. And knowing all of those things, they're not talking about, oh, now I can identify alliteration and onomatopoeia in a poem. They're able to talk about their growth as readers, as writers, as historians, as political citizens. And Mm -hmm. we're not there yet. And I would like us to be closer. Melanie, well said. Thank you so much for that. Now, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? On the business end, I won't say read, but to definitely watch Tim LeBarrick's TED Talk mm-hmm. on the business romantic. That was the game changer for me as far as staff relations go and giving just to give and keeping the romance, he calls it, in the workplace where there are pleasant surprises there. Mm. And I read, as a young teacher, Richard Kent's Room 109, The Promise of a Portfolio Classroom, pushes the entire onus of the class on students and gives them choice and ownership of what they are reading, what they are creating, what they are writing. So that, I think, is an important book. Mm -hmm. Penny Kittle is writing beautifully right now about workshop in the high school, on the high school level. And then the rest of my reading really is poetry. Stephen Dunn's Lines of Defense is wonderful and doesn't have anything to do with leadership, but will make you a better person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, self-leadership is where we need to start. Yeah, absolutely. And anything that you're reading, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those are things that I like to read. I like to always have a poetry book on hand. Right. I like to be making my way through something pedagogical. And I like to be keeping up with what's popping up in my newsfeed and what's on the Atlantic or what's in the New York Times, because all of those things are of the moment and give us things to talk about. Great. So Melanie, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? I hold on for dear life. It's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough question for me. I don't know right now that I'm that intentional. I try to list and prioritize and then I put the list down and I can't find it again. So that hasn't particularly worked for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I have any great practices, Lily, on that one. If you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think I would tell myself to listen more to the leaders in my life and to my friends and to my colleagues to become a better listener because I think the best leaders and the leaders that I admire are very good at not talking about themselves and being able to see the bigger picture and being able to be involved in someone else's life more than they're involved in their life. And that's a skill that I continue to work on and that I think is vitally important for Mm -hmm. a leader. Melanie, I believe it shows in your life. So thank you so much for that. Last question. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? I don't think so. I think you hit the nail on the head when you asked me about change in education. Okay, we covered it all. Melanie, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Lily, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been fun. Bye-bye. Take care. Hello leaders, in closing, here's a quick message. 
Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.